Guess who could get a statue on the grounds of the Tennessee Capitol? Yep, Dolly Parton, obviously. I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran. And I'm Chaz Sisk. You are listening to the TriStar State, a conversation about Tennessee politics from Nashville Public Radio. This is the episode for the week of February 14th, 2021. Happy Valentine's Day and enjoy the show. Well, hi, Sergio. Always a pleasure to be talking to you. Especially during this week that the Tennessee legislature is back. Hi, Chas. <laughs> so this past week saw the return of a frequent topic of controversy at the state capitol, the fight around transgender rights. The Tennessee General Assembly is considering a bill that would limit the ability of transgender athletes to play sports. But, Sergio, this is not a bill unique to Tennessee, right? Right. I mean, over a dozen states have introduced measures similar to the one in Tennessee. And we're talking about states like Maine, Utah, Georgia. This bill would ban transgender women from playing on a women's sports team. And, you know, Republicans have said that this is needed because they want to protect some female athletes from losing scholarships to transgender women. Yeah, but no one seems to know of any cases of transgender women or girls competing on teams in Tennessee, do they? You know, Chaz, that's been one of my main questions to those who support the bill. Uh, I've been asking whether they know how many transgender athletes are in the state or if they have any statistics that show that there are some women actually losing scholarships. And no one has been able to point me to actual stats. Everything they have cited has been anecdotal. And, you know, some Republicans recognize this. They say it might not be happening in Tennessee, but it is happening in other states. And so they want to prevent it from happening here. Right. Uh, So the measure is moving through the House but you believe its future in the state Senate is a little unclear. Can you explain that? So I think it's fair to say, first of all, that the measure will start going through the Senate committee system soon. But the difference is that Senate Speaker Randy McNally is not as enthused as other Republicans. He says that if this is not an issue in Tennessee, then the legislature should not address it. Yeah, but we have heard Governor Bill Lee express support for this measure. Right. And and it's important to know, Chas, that Governor Lee pretty much went out of his way to tell reporters how he felt about this measure. And I say that because we know that Lee tends to not talk that much about measures. Every time you ask him about a legislative proposal, he tends to say that he hasn't seen it or that he will wait for it to be passed. But with this one, he didn't hold back. When a reporter asked him, he said that allowing transgender athletes to compete would destroy women's sports. But again, he didn't cite any statistics. Got it. So, you know, why now? Especially if there aren't any transgender athletes in Tennessee getting ready to compete, at least not as far as anybody can tell. Well, I think one of the factors is that we are getting closer to an election year. You know, Governor Lee is up for re-election in 2022 A bunch of the members in the legislature are too. So this is the type of bill that they'll discuss when they go back to their districts to try to earn votes. So it's political. Well, after many years of decline, Senate Democrats in the Tennessee legislature have seen their caucus grow by one seat. Still, they remain deep in the minority with only six members among them. That's out of 33 senators. But Memphis Senator Ramesh Akberry says that won't stop Democrats from fighting against measures that they believe will cause harm to the state and Tennesseans. And they're hopeful of maybe even seeing some proposals passed. Here's Akberry being interviewed by WPLN's political reporter, Sergio Martinez Beltran. Senator Ramesh Akberry, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to talk about, you know, the governor's state of the state address. 
Among his plans, uh, he talked about $900 million for capital maintenance and improvements. He talked about money for broadband, expanding tanker postpartum coverage. What are your initial thoughts, though, when, when you hear these proposals? Well, I'll tell you, um, it's, it's, it's a mixture, right? Like, I'm excited to hear about broadband expansion, but I also know that there are people in urban areas that don't have access to broadband. So it's not just about expanding to about the 7% in our state that doesn't have it. But I'm telling you, in 2021, there's no reason, given that we are the United States of America, that any child, any family should be in a situation where they don't have access to broadband internet. Um, as far as the proposals around uh, uh, post-maternal uh, health, I mean, obviously that's a good thing, but I just don't think it goes far enough, right? If we expanded Medicaid, we'd be able to do a lot of these programs quite easily, from addressing mental health among our children and our veterans to addressing just overall health care for those who can't afford coverage. So I think that with us having $3 billion in additional funding that we did not anticipate, this was an opportunity to really go big. Uh, to provide additional educational investments. Our children are our future. I know that's a cliche, but it's the truth. Uh, and Tennessee is $560 million behind Alabama in education spending. We're 46 in the nation. Uh, so I really wanted us to address our broken BEP, our, our education funding formula, because you can fully fund it, but if the formula that, that funds our, our school systems is broken, then we're not getting anywhere. Also, I mean, we do have this massive investment in our Capitol University buildings and our state parks. But again, I want to make sure that provides Tennessee jobs. With us not having anything in place where there's a requirement that Tennessee companies are hired, because usually when you talk about building investment and infrastructure investment, that's a jobs bill. Uh, and I don't know that I, I heard that. Is there anything you think is positive out of this spending plan? I mean, certainly I am excited about the investment in literacy. I think that that's a big deal. Uh, since I got to the legislature, literacy has always been an issue statewide among children. And I do firmly believe, and I think the experts firmly believe in a phonics-based approach. Uh, so that is encouraging. Um, I think that some of our investments, I mean, anytime you're giving a raise to a teacher, it's a good thing. The thing is, though, again, based on the funding formula, usually they don't feel any of that. Um, so that's a problem. I do think the investment in broadband is good. Um, again, I'm hoping that it creates additional jobs. And we will also do some sort of pivot where we do include urban communities where the technology might be there, but it may as well not be because people don't have access. Um, so I don't know. I mean, anytime, it's funny because I was talking to my colleagues and anytime I look back on Facebook, I have Facebook memories from like, oh, this is what happened four years ago. Four years ago, I was applauding something that Governor Haslam announced in his state of the state um, because I feel like even if I'm not going to agree with everything, there's got to be something I can agree with. And I, I felt that way about Governor Lee's state of the state. I mean, I, I am pleased with some of the investments. I just think we had opportunities to do more. We didn't seize them. And this is a time, like, if, if not now, then when? I mean, I thought we also delved into some partisan rhetoric that I really did not like. And I felt like it was an opportunity to unite folks instead of kind of more of the same partisan politics. He talked about pro-life measures and how he was a strong supporter of pro-life uh, bills. I wanted to ask you, though, you, you mentioned how you tend to applaud some things from the other governors, even though they are from the other party. You seem to be one of those members who, who work with the other side more than others. Is it hard? Is it complicated uh, now more than ever? Unfortunately, I think so. 
Um, I still think we have to do it though. Uh, one, because there are so many things we do agree on. I think this summer session was a bit rough when you talk about uh, some of the legislation, like the protesters bill, that was really disheartening. Um, when you look at how the um, abortion, the anti-choice bill is kind of like a midnight, you know, past midnight passing of that legislation. So those are the type of things, the fundamental things that we disagree on. It makes it kind of hard to kind of build that relationship. And I think also just the nature of COVID and that, you know, some people want to wear masks or some people are wearing masks and are, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of science, doing the right thing. And some folks don't want to. And so it gets kind of testy there too. So, I mean, I'm hoping that we can continue, at least I will try to continue a bipartisan tradition and, and you know, because there's too much at stake, right, to get caught up in partisan politics. But I think that this past election season just brought out some of the ugliest things I've ever seen. And I'm not talking about from the legislature, I'm talking about overall. Let's talk about uh, coronavirus. You lost an aunt due to the deadly virus. First, we want to say we're very sorry about it. Uh, recently, you said that Governor Bill interventions have been too little and too late. What do you mean by that? Well, I think I was speaking on behalf of the Democratic Caucus in the House and the Senate, and we wrote letters when the virus first broke out, and it seemed that a bunch of different areas were doing some shutdowns to try and mitigate initial spread. We requested that he do that, um, and, and we didn't get a safer at home order. Uh, we requested that we have a mask mandate. It's so small, and every, I mean, even Dr. Burks, who worked in the Trump White House, came to Nashville and said, you guys need a mask mandate. You need to be careful about what bars you keep open. My parents have a service-based business. We are in a position we've never been in before. I mean, we are really having to pivot and, you know, struggle and, and try and rely on whatever programs exist to try and maintain until, until, until we're through with this. But to me, if, if folks aren't healthy, uh, if you're not living, um, then, then what is it all for? So I, I was disappointed in that. I, I was disappointed that there was no mask mandate, that there was no leadership on that. And and I know the governor's belief is people will do better if they're not mandated, but I think sometimes people have to be mandated, just like the speed limit on the highway. You have to be mandated. Otherwise, I drive 100 plus miles an hour. I mean, you have to be, otherwise, that's why we regulate food. Otherwise, people would sell things that were not safe for consumption. I think the same goes when you're talking about protecting the health and safety of people across the state, especially because at one point, Tennessee had the highest rate in the world. Now, the downturn in the COVID-19 cases, first of all, I'm so thankful, uh, but that's part of a national trend. I don't know that it's been anything that's Tennessee specific. What I'd like us to continue, what I'd like to see more focused on is this vaccine distribution. And again, I don't blame the state for how that was rolled out. I really blame the federal government. I mean, the Trump administration promised vaccines that did not exist. Um, and so if the state doesn't have them, they can't get them down to the counties. Uh, but I just, I want to take as much as we can, some level of political ideology out of things when we're talking about science. I mean, if you have doctors, a coalition of doctors across the state saying our emergency rooms are crowded, hospital uh, professionals saying our emergency rooms are crowded, please issue a mask mandate. I just didn't understand it. And I mean, he's governor, that's his position. He's able to do that. But it just really, that's really what I was talking about. That and then, of course, the shutdown measures and the reopening measures and all of that. Well, we've seen across the country that communities of colors have not had had access to the vaccines, like non-black uh, or brown communities, white communities. So 
curious to know, is there a concern? Are you concerned about our communities of color not having the access to the vaccines? Oh, oh, always concerned about that. So initially there was a, a, a doctor in Memphis that in an article in the Memphis Business Journal, he said that uh, Memphis only received 7% of the vaccines, but it accounted for 14% of the population. So I reached out to Dr. Piercy at the Department of Health right away. And she, we talked, we talked for almost an hour and she made it very clear uh, that we received 14.1%. So I think a lot of it also falls on our locals, right? Like initially in Shelby County, which I know they're working as hard as they can, they're doing a great job, but some of the distribution, the two distribution sites were not in the black community. And also we were still and are still, well, we've gotten to getting some of those elderly folks, but in a position where we were only doing 1A and 1AB. Now um, the, the department, the Department of Health, the State Department of Health has led on having the vaccines go to Walmart. Uh, because Walmart, I think, was the largest pharmacy that was used by people across the state. And then the Biden administration directly has also sent them to some other pharmacies like Walgreens and things like that. Um, the local health department has made a point to now start putting um, vaccine distribution sites in the black community. That was something that we really asked for, making sure that it's not something that's just internet based. Some of our older people, some of our communities don't have internet. And so by the time um, you know, they found out that signup existed. It was, it was out of, they were out of um, luck or they had to drive really far. So I'm, I'm definitely concerned. I think anytime we have a situation where, where we are, you know, in some sort of need, uh, communities of color uh, are always the ones that get the short end of the stick. Uh, so that's what I've been pushing for. That's what my colleagues have been pushing for. And again, it's just, it, it requires knowledge and an emphasis from federal, state, and local. And it all comes down to inequities and inequality, which brings me to my other point about racial justice. I mean, we've seen how there were protests against police brutality and the racism in the government institutions. I mean, even in the state legislature, uh, we've heard white lawmakers making racist comments last year. I want to ask, I mean, usually when you're a person of color, it's on you to figure out the world and change it. And uh, but I want to flip that because the Republicans are the supermajority in the state. So what do you think they need to do to address this? One, I think they need to acknowledge that it's real. So often people uh, feel like it's a personal insult to say that racial injustice and inequities exist. Or they say, look, I'm not privileged. I grew up poor, I'm not not understanding what it truly means. I was able to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I think there has to be a reckoning. There needs to be some training, just like we had training around sexual harassment. There needs to be training around diversity sensitivity. And for people to realize it's not an us versus them. It's a we as a people have to come together and understand we do have differences that are important. We have to acknowledge them. To say you don't see color is saying you don't see the richness of someone's heritage. We have to understand that we have more in common than we don't uh, and that we cannot continue to have these discussions where we are marginalizing people of color and where folks who have always been in the majority in America, are they themselves feeling marginalized? I've been reckoning with kind of this concept of everybody has a right to have their feelings and to be heard. But I think when you have it at a point where you are trampling on the rights of others, that's when that stops. Uh, but as a, as a supermajority, I hope that there's more of an education process and less of a and, and I feel like, I mean, the Senate made a point to say, hey, um, we want to 
like they took they wanted to take off for Juneteenth. They asked us if, if that like actually acknowledging that that was something that was important to the black community. But I think we need to take it a step further because I've seen some comments um, on Twitter that are really disheartening. Some of it's come from the House. I haven't really seen a lot of it from the um, Senate, but I think it's 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 also easy to get caught up in this narrative that Donald Trump was pushing out in this us versus them mentality. So I'm hoping we'll have further discussion. We'll work through it. It is very painful and difficult for the burden to fall on the person of color. Um, it, it, and you don't even realize how painful it is to try and explain to someone like, this is my experience. This is what I've been through. And this, it, it, and when they don't get it, it makes it even harder. But I will tell you, I've had a couple senators reach out to me have those private conversations and that really was something that was encouraging can you share how those conversations have gone it, it was a little painful but i'll tell you what i appreciated was the circling back and saying look i understand what you're saying and i want us to talk more and i think that willingness to have an open mind from a position of privilege is really really important um so so it was, it was encouraging we'll see though you know <laughs> As the chairwoman of the Senate Democratic Caucus, can you share some of the priorities of your caucus for, for this session? Certainly. We have our Tennessee Recovery Act, which really does focus on increased spending in education, um, making sure that every person has access to a doctor and access to health care so that if they have an injury or an accident, it's not something that's going to you know financially bankrupt them. Uh, making sure that people have a fair, you know, um, work leave and work hours and work pay. Now, these are really ambitious things that obviously we're not going to be able to accomplish without the majority buying in. But I think it's important that we we speak up and raise these issues for the people we represent. Uh, so obviously, a tremendous focus on health care and investment in our education system and investment in our workers, uh, redefining what it means to be a worker in Tennessee, which we believe should be uh, a gradual increase in the minimum wage. Uh, and then also kind of addressing criminal justice reform in a meaningful way. That's the thing I think that I was most disappointed about yesterday with the governor's state of the state. It didn't really mention that. And I thought that, you know, in his um, campaigning for governor and also in his inaugural address and even in his first state of the state, I mean, I was super excited about the things he announced then. It seemed to be more, more forward thinking. But Tennessee is the only state where we've had an increase in incarceration rates and an increase in spending when we, quite frankly, I was on a task this, this summer where we talked about decreasing what we were spending on corrections and on incarceration. So I'm a little confused. I'm hoping that there will be some packages that are transformative, uh, fingers crossed, toes crossed, everything else, because I know that we've had those conversations and it seemed like the governor's office supported them, but to not hear any announcement about it yesterday, I just, I really don't know. And it's important to know that last year, the governor pushed for a bill that enhances penalties for protesters who choose to camp on state property. And also this year, he is pushing for a measure, the constitutional carry bill, that it's, it's on the budget. It says that it will cost the state $17.8 million on incarceration costs for those who break the law. I know. And I, I mean, open carry is a holdover from last year. That was something he announced then. I I'm not happy about it. I think it's unnecessary. I said this yesterday and I've said it on the floor in the Senate. It is very easy to get a gun permit. It is a simple class. And as a matter of fact, I think legislation was passed a year or two ago. Well, you don't even have to take the class. It's like something you can do online. Uh, so it should not be a big deal to get a gun permit. I, just like, I mean, what are we going to do next? Deregulate driving? So just because I want to drive a vehicle, I can go get in there without a driver's license? 
I mean, how far are we going to take this? And then to say that it's protecting our, our gun rights, our constitutional, our Second Amendment rights, that is not what that's doing. We already have a very strong, robust protection for the right to bear arms. And I think it just gets caught up in weird partisan rhetoric when we talk about uh, open carry. And further, law enforcement is strongly against it. So we want to listen to law enforcement selectively. I mean, my police chief is against the police director. Every police officer I've talked to, every sheriff I've talked to, they do not want this. Campuses don't want this. Businesses don't want this. So I don't think it's a good, a good agenda item at all. I want to talk to you about the future of the Democratic Party in the state. Uh, the Democrats recently won a seat in the Senate, and we're talking about the state Senate. Do you think more seats can be won in 2022 or 2024? We hope, right? So the seat we won this year was the first seat that was flipped since 2006, so that was quite a spell. I mean, I graduated from college in 2006, so... <laughs> but it, it, the concern is that we will have redistricting, okay? So once we get our census numbers, we just, new districts will probably be released next year this time. And because we have this hyper-partisan environment, and it was the case when Democrats were in charge too, we just didn't have the technology they have now to really gerrymander districts. I think that that's a concern, right? Because the districts are more representative of the person in power as opposed to representative of the people. Quite frankly, I would prefer something that is a bipartisan council so that no political party can gerrymander a district. Senator Ramesh Agberi of Memphis, thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> Coming up this week, a discussion about statues, but this time it's not about the one honoring Dolly Parton. Instead, it's the hearing on the controversial bust of Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest that's up in the state capitol, and the Tennessee Historical Commission will meet Thursday and Friday to discuss its relocation to the state museum. You can find our coverage of that online or on the air. Thank you for listening to the TriStar State. If you want to keep up with our political coverage, then you got to subscribe. You do it at wpln.org slash TriStar or on your favorite podcasting app. Until next week.